Welcome to episode 257 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Lately, I've been very interested in how incumbent businesses, especially Canadian oil companies, respond to the disruption caused by new technologies. And the global tra energy transition is fundamentally a technology revolution. Do incumbents pivot to a new business model? Do they re-engineer the existing business model? Or do they change very little and double down on the status quo? Well, spoiler alert, in the oil patch, it's very frequently more of the same. PwC Canada recently surveyed CEOs, Canada and around the world, and the themes included climate change, uh, artificial intelligence, and corporate reinvention. I'm going to be joined today by Shelley Gilberg, a national platforms leader and ESG strategy partner, PwC Canada, and we're going to talk about the, the survey and disruptive change. So welcome to the interview, Shelley. Thank you for having me, Markham. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on here is because in the academic world, uh, you can find, you know, there are, there is a school of, you know, around business management, uh, where within the business management uh, realm, where disruption and, and reinvention kind of things, it's common. I mean, there's a lot of literature on this. It's been studied to death, particularly in the, in the U.S. Um, but in the day-to-day you know, like the business press, for example, uh, or water cooler conversation, reinvention is not a big, it's not common. We're not, you know, really tackling it yet. And uh, would you agree with that? I would agree with that. And I think it's interesting to see the difference between some of the Canadian data and the global data in the questions we were asking CEOs. So Canadian CEOs, in many cases, thought they were less exposed to climate risk, less exposed to inflation, less exposed to a number of macro factors compared to their global peers. But interestingly enough, a quarter of them last year would have said, I'm questioning whether my organization is going to be viable in 10 years. And that's up to almost a third of them this year. So that, that the disconnect in the data is interesting to me that on one hand, they're really looking and saying, am I going to be able to not just survive, but thrive? But on the other hand, um, Canada has a very interesting tendency to be laggards on adopting a number of things. And I say that with lots of love as a proud Canadian, but uh, the disconnect between those two data points I thought was really interesting. I would have to agree with you, and, and particularly in the um, uh, in the oil patch, it's a focus of mine, but also in the uh, electricity sector. And I often say that in the in the power sector, uh, it's because we're kind of a victim of our own success. Uh, you know, we have an 84% emissions-free um, grid, thanks to 60% hydro, 17% nuclear, and the rest would be, uh, you know, renewables and and so on. And the the provinces control them. So very often, and I think in eight out of 10 provinces, we're talking about uh, crown corporations, you know, government-owned corporations that are the utility that control generation, transmission, distribution, even if you have a little bit of, of private uh, sector uh, activity. And so it's worked really well. I mean, we have we have uh, clean electricity. We have abundant electricity. It's reliable. It's low cost. It's everything that the international agency would love in power sectors. But it's it's not built for the 21st century. It's got its roots in the in the you know it's a hundred years old, 
and it doesn't change. Utility executives are known for being cautious and conservative and because, you know, reliability is a big issue. And I, I can't help but think that that variations of that culture are dominant all throughout the country. W would you agree or disagree? I, I, I would largely agree. But what gives me hope is I think there's some really interesting examples of reinvention taking a couple of different forms and, and companies that are actually taking action and, and looking long term. And you know, the, the two that probably come to mind most, Markham, are if I think about some of our Canadian companies, particularly in the, in the oil and gas patch, that are looking at equity partnerships with Indigenous communities, as an example. I would consider that a reinvention in terms of thinking about the business model differently than consultation. But I have yet to see, now I'm old, so I can still be pretty wrong, but I, I have yet to see a better mechanism for aligning interests than equity participation. Uh, I, I think that's really novel and kudos to, you know, TC, Suncor, Cedar LNG, some of those examples I think are interesting. The other thing that I'm, I'm intrigued by is partnerships, ecosystems, and investment in R&D that we're seeing some of our Canadian uh, extractive companies, uh, and particularly uh, in, in your favorite area, tackle. I, mean, I look at the Pathways Alliance as an ecosystem and a partnership among peers to say, how do we de-risk and scale carbon capture technology? I think that's a different way of thinking. I think examples like Project Arrow 2.0 to build a tip-to-tail Canadian EV that starts to build this ecosystem across the value chain, all the way from mining and Sayona through to battery manufacturing, recycling, automotive production, and including utilities in that value chain, I think some organizations are starting to think differently. And, and my prediction is those are gonna be the ones that not only survive, but thrive. Yeah, I would I would have to agree. And you you made some very interesting, compare, uh, brought up some examples. Um, later this week, we're gonna have Flavio uh, Volpe from the uh, AMPA, uh, Automotive Parts, Ma Automotive Manufacturing Parts Association of Canada. There it is. And the the what you referred to, of course, is the the uh, there are seven hundred plus uh, automotive suppliers in Canada. Most of them would be in Ontario, and they got together and and they all contributed parts and and they designed uh, a very spanky uh, electric uh, SUV. And I'm very impressed. I told Flavio that I would gladly uh, buy uh, not the first one because that would be a little expensive, but down the road. And um, uh, I think that's exactly right. I, you know, the the automotive suppliers have responded to say, "Hey, look, we can be, we can play in the electric space." And here's our example. Um, but you also brought up Suncor and, and some of the other Alberta oil companies. And I'm not, I see that this is where the the debate comes in because I don't see the Pathways Alliance so much as responding to disruptive change so much as banding together to fend off change. Because when I look at oil oil companies in, in other jurisdictions, many of them are just like them. I mean, we shouldn't single the Canadian oil companies out and say that they're, they're more conservative or more resistant to change. The whole industry is grappling with, you know, what's, what's it supposed to do as electricity displaces oil and, and, and is coming for gas with heat pumps. 
And and so I, I get it that it's very uh, difficult for them. But I mean, today, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith is in Ottawa arguing against the oil and gas emissions cap, which Pathways Alliance was created to address around carbon capture and storage. And I've, I, you know, I know the guys at Pathways Alliance and, and I wouldn't, it's, it's very difficult because you could make an argument on either side. That, and that's part of the interesting uh, aspect of this. You made an argument for that it's a response to disruption. It's a, it's a, a form of reinvention. I would argue that it isn't reinvention and we could both be right. And I think the beauty of Canada is all of those opinions and more exist. Let me test one back with you. Different, different example. Sure. So if I think about your, your original question was around disruption and in particular sort of technology. If I look at M&A being at its absolute lowest in oil and gas since 2008, and uh, my good colleagues at Deloitte just recently did a study on the same, so not good. I I think they're right, but clean tech deals by ONG have been thirty two billion dollars worth. Uh, think I think about Occidental's purchase of Carbon Engineering last August, you know, for one point one billion dollars. I do think, uh, my opinion, and um, would love to hear yours. I think you're seeing traditional players invest or acquire clean tech to vertically integrate it. And and there are examples of people that are not avoiding the change, but saying, how do I actually make this part of my strategy? How do I vertically integrate it? How do I make myself my own biggest customer in this new technology and move forward? And, and I think we're going to see more and more of that activity. But I'd be curious how you would characterize that kind of a deal. Well, I'm glad you asked because I actually do have an opinion on this. So um, I would have to say that uh, Alberta and in particular Calgary does not get the recognition it deserves as being a hub of innovation. Uh, it is a leader in clean tech, and but a lot of the clean tech is in, deployed into the oil and gas industry. And a lot of it is around emissions and, and, and uh, operational efficiencies, as you would expect. Um, the example you used of Oxy, um, Carbon Engineering was a Canadian company. And it was originally came out of the University of Calgary, out of research that was done there. Then it moved to BC, and then it got into a, a partnership with Oxy down in Texas, and then Oxy bought it up. I mean, this is a classic Canadian story, right? We don't scale things. When Canadian companies, when they when they're ready to scale, they go south of the border and scale where capital is is more readily available. But then there's the example of Suncor which was uh, a favorite has been a favorite of mine for a long time because they recognized climate change early on and and they uh, their response to this was uh, in, in the past to invest in startups. So Enercam out of Quebec, uh, they invested in in that then Enercam's got now a, uh, a recycling operation in the Edmonton landfill where they do 90 95% of all of the whatever goes in uh, gets recycled. And some of it turned into fuel. And that's an Enercam project. Suncor invested in that. Suncor invests in Lanzajet, which is creates, uh, they have a, a microbial-based process for making sustainable aviation fuel. It's very radical. And, and good on Suncor for doing that. But then last year, the board hired Rich Kruger, uh, brought him out of retirement, a, a longtime uh, oil patch executive. And the first thing he did was cancel all that stuff. 
and and say nope nope we're going back to our knitting and we're under pressure from investors we need to improve our financial performance they had some safety issues some people were killed on the job in the oil sands we have to fix that and so they brought them in to kind of tidy up the the business that they were in and and he said very clearly we're out of the energy transition we're we're going to we're going to you know for the foreseeable future we're going to focus on what we do well so again this comes back to you can argue both sides of this both, both sides of the argument um with these kinds of examples is suncor innovative or is it innovative you know it just depends how you, which lens you you're looking at it through I think there's an interesting trend, and 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 I don't mean it to come across as 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 critical. So I hope you know your audience will hear it as an observation. Oh no, they they like me being critical. <laughs> critical is good. If you want to be critical, have at it. Well, but, but my example on some of this, and if we look at Suncorn pulling back, like our data would say globally, like forty one percent of CEOs said we're going to set lower return requirements for the things that are doing we're doing that are climate friendly. In Canada, even fewer, 30% said that. But what, what I think they're leaving on the table in behaving traditionally is some of the purpose-specific alternate capital sources and instruments that are out there. If you think about Brookfield's transition fund, you think about the Canada Growth Fund and their verticals around major projects, clean tech, and low-carbon supply chain, I think in a scenario where there's lots of free cash flow, it tends to be, I'm going to the board and the balance sheet for these projects. And, and I think potentially that's limiting. And the Suncor example is one where, was there alternative capital that was already risk return adjusted for the purposes of transition or decarbonization that would have been acceptable? So you can focus on improving your financial performance. But I, I think our, particularly our Canadian companies and the corporates need to be thinking differently about accessing some of these alternate sources of capital versus the, their typical way that they fund some of these investments and some of their responses. Because I, I think they're leaving money on the table that is actually smart money. It, That's a very interesting perspective because finance in uh, whether you call it green finance, climate finance, uh, or it's just finance going into, uh, you know, sort of clean tech type of company, companies is a hot topic today. And it was a hot topic at, at COP28. Uh, and so uh, I've, I've been through all of the oil sands companies, and there's five or six of them, through their investor presentations. And the big focus, and the change over the last few years has been that the investors are demanding high returns. They want bigger, they want higher dividends and they want more share buybacks to support the, uh, the, the uh, share price. And you see literally 75% of all free cash flow now must go to the investors. And, and a company like Suncor will say, and if we're having a good year, we'll give you half of the, the remaining 25%. So it could be 87.5%. And that, and part of it, I think, Shelley, is the fact that the oil sands, and this is not widely appreciated, is a very different beast than a shale producer or a conventional oil producer. You know, it's it's a uh, low decline. Uh, once you, you it's it's kind of like clean energy technology, really. You know, the your big investment is your capex upfront, it's your purchase price. 
And yeah. so you build all the mine and you or you build the the SAG D facilities and you put in your infrastructure. And once you've done all that, and that's all paid for for the most part, uh, right as we speak now, once you've done that, then all the, the amount of capital that you require to continue operations is really quite low. And then that allows you to focus on efficiencies and you know uh, maybe laying off people, cutting your costs, you know that kind of the kind of stuff that Kruger did as soon as he came in at Suncor. That's very different. And so the it, some of what you're talking about with the oil sands companies may be because they simply don't require as much capital as other oil companies or as they even have uh, required in the past. That's valid. And I think as companies look ahead, though, Mark, what's going to be interesting is you, know, you could you could argue that all the things that we're experiencing right now have happened before. We've had pandemics, we've had wars, we've had high inflation, we've had demographic, wild demographic shifts. They've not all happened at the same time. And add, you know, climate change as a physical issue, as a movement, and as a business issue, I think today's CEOs are extraordinarily challenged in that kind of polycrisis environment where how do you predict the future? And you know, in the context of climate change in Canada, your comment about uh, Premier Smith being in Ottawa, you have this extraordinary uncertainty, which makes those investments very difficult. And 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 one of the things that I, I, I'm sympathetic to our Canadian companies is it's really difficult to decide whether you're going to make a major CapEx decision when you don't have clarity. Those are 10, 20, 30-year assets and decisions. And in the absence of clarity, we tend to have a little bit of a wait and see. I, I see it on some of the, well, we're going to wait and see if the regulator says something. We're going to wait and see what the feds are doing. And, and I think that's unfortunate because in some cases, they actually do have the ability to invest. What they don't have is enough certainty to decide right. to do so. And they say that all the time. I mean, they, you know, when we get to talking about LNG projects on the West Coast, uncertainty, uh, I'm a little skeptical of the regulatory uncertainty because there, there are some cost issues. Like if you're on the West Coast of BC, you've got now got one giant LNG project that'll come on in what, 2025, 2026? And, and, and that's about it. And the problem is that, you know, down in Louisiana and Texas, you've got that huge petrochemical, you know, complex where CapEx, the capital costs are half of what they are on the, on the West coast, even if operating coasts on BC are lower because of the cool, cooler temperatures. It doesn't quite, you know, it, it's a tough, it's a tough road to hope uh, for, for Canadian projects. And, you know, so they talk about regulatory uncertainty, but eh, there's some other, some other issues at play. I want to do something, uh, Shelley. Uh, I have a little hypothesis, a little model that I use when I think about this issue, because uh, I think about it a lot, because I see disrupted companies all over the place. Let me run this past you. You tell me what you think. I think there are three responses from corporations when they're disrupted. The first one is they can pivot. So DONG, the Danish oil and gas company, became the world's largest wind energy installer. It pivoted from oil and gas into into wind. Um, or it can re-engineer its business model. And you see, uh, as an example, this Canadians won't be that familiar with this, but U.S. Elect uh, electrical utilities are moving from the traditional integrated model where you control everything. They're flattening that model and becoming like a platform 
where everybody can trade energy and services. So, you know, if you're a, if you're a homeowner that's generate, you got rooftop solar, then you can sell into that, onto that platform and somebody can buy it and you can buy services and on and on and on. Uh, that's still in its infancy, but there's a lot of talk about that's where it's going. And the third response is the status quo response. And I think, you know, so we talked uh, you know, in the last 10, 10 minutes or so about why there would be a status quo response. Uncertainty, try, you know, the, uh, the, the sort of the poly crisis that's going on, regulatory uncertainty, uh, challenges faced by corporations. Sometimes they just want to hunker down, see if things will blow over uh, before they, uh, they do anything too radical. And I would argue, and I have argued in columns, that the Alberta oil companies have picked the return to status quo. They just want to survive for the time being, see how this all plays out. Uh, they don't want to be on the leading edge. And in fact, if you look at the Canadian energy regulators, net zero scenario modeling, um, climate compliance, if they have, if those companies have to pay, like the oil sands companies have to pay climate compliance, that may make them uncompetitive in the future. And, and we could see a significant reduction in oil sands production uh, because they now become a, a, a higher cost producer than they would have otherwise. And so there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. But that's pivot, re-engineer, and status quo is kind of the filter, the model that I use to understand disruption in the energy world. Um, what Does that make sense to you? I think that makes a lot of sense. And there's there's a dimension of this that I'd love to talk about with you, though, because part of why I think, at least in some of the conversations I have with our corporates, part of why it may feel like status quo is, I think one of the conversations they're trying to force to happen is there still needs to be a conversation about transition. We don't go from how we power Canada today to where we wanna be on our net zero commitments with the snap of the fingers. And, and I think in my conversations, particularly with their boards, that's a part of the dialogue they think is missing. So my first career was social work, Michael. So I find when people repeat okay. themselves, uh, one of two things is happening. They're either traumatized or they're not feeling heard. And I think one of the messages that some of our Canadian companies are trying to send, particularly in traditional ONG is, Where's the conversation about transition and adaptation? I I do have a lot of thoughts about that, and I'll tell you why. Um, Forty years ago, when I was doing my graduate work at the University of Saskatchewan, and, and Canadian listeners, uh, you know, if you've you've heard this story before, so you can go out and get a coffee now and come back in a couple of minutes and <laughs> and pick up on the conversation. But I did my my thesis title was the the transition from horses and and steam to power farming in Saskatchewan, 1900 to 1930. So the idea is that's the big last really big uh, energy transition because you went, you it, that was the internal combustion engine and petroleum. And we've had, we've been on that train for the last hundred and some years. Um, so at that time I had to read all the, all the theory, you know, like Everett Rogers, you know, was my bedtime reading. And, and uh, all of that theory has been very useful to me as an energy journalist, because now I have a context. And in fact, uh, it's very interesting. Last six months, my services uh, to present, uh, uh, pre provide presentations to various organizations and companies in Alberta to explain the mechanics of transition. This is the thing that's often uh, missing. I, I'm 
and I'm I, I'm going to pick on oil oil and gas companies simply because those are the ones that I report on all the time, and it's it's the world I'm in. But I know this is true in other industries as well. So uh, oil and gas folks don't feel too picked on. But the the level of misunderstanding about how transitions work. S curves. Never heard of an S curve. Never heard of an oh we we've heard of early adopters. Oh, there's more categories of adopters on that S on that bell curve. Oh, we didn't know that. How do they make calculations when they buy technologies? What? Never heard of that. So giving them some 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 theoretical frameworks within which to place the global energy transition, the Canadian energy transition, the transition as it affects them in their industry is really key. And I hate to say it, but this is true in the in the C-suites. It's true at the board level. It's true at the management level. The understanding of how energy transitions work is not great. And therefore, these guys, I mean, I, I understand why they're pushing back. But it's, in from my point of view, they're asking for the wrong conversation. And what conversation do you think they should be asking for, Mark? I, th I think the, the they should know where their industry is. See, the oil and gas industry in Alberta, there's a big debate over this. And uh, the industry itself hews to the OPEC uh, model, where it says, no, 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 energy transition is going to be slow. We're going to grow oil demand out to 2045, and it's going to be a long plateau and a slow decline. And then there's the International Energy Agency model, which says, ah, ah peak demand by 2030, uh, short plateau, and then falls off, demand falls off a cliff because of rapid electrification of transportation. I think that the data and the evidence lines up with the IEA. And I think the I think the Canadian oil and gas companies are facing an existential threat that they underplay. Uh, they don't appreciate the gravity of their, their situation. And I think that what they should be doing is they should be looking at where they are in the S-curve, what kind of challenges, where, where is the challenge coming from? And they should be thinking about pivots. Maybe not re-engineering, that's a little too radical for these guys, but but pivots to protect themselves and, and, and the resource, frankly, because bitumen is one of the, it's an amazing building block for materials. We shouldn't be burning it. Burning it is a sin in my in my view. Uh, <laughs> so we should, we should pivot, pivot into materials. So that's a very different conversation. If you sit in with a bunch of the pathways guys, they're not having that conversation. They're having an entirely different conversation. And I think it's the wrong one. It, it's distracting because they don't see what's coming at them from the global level, which is where their cost, where their product is priced, and where their 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 customers are ultimately located. So anyway, that's my take on. It. I I can see that I can see the merit in that for sure. I think it's a really complicated conversation across Canada. If you looked at the natural balance sheet, you know, Alberta is in one situation. BC's in another, Ontario's in another, Quebec's in another, and it may not be, a, we may not have enough time on today's conversation, Markham, but I think one of the other challenges for Canada, quite frankly, is that all of this is quite provincial in terms of when you think about your comment about the utilities. We send more power north-south than we do east-west. Oh yes, that's um, very true. Canada is, despite the fact it's an enormous country, it's actually a relatively small economy and we are not self-contained. 
and I think one of our challenges is this provincial pride and something we value in the you know the model that we have for Canada, but I actually think it's an inhibitor on a lot of fronts in terms of making things happen more quickly, um, creating common larger markets versus fragmented bits across the country and how do you actually respond to that and understand that? I, I think the, the model we've got may have served us well for many things. I'm not sure it's serving us well for the energy transition. Boy, I couldn't agree with you more. And and all you have to do is look at the Western Canadian uh, power sector as a classic example. So what you have is for, for non-Canadians, you have four provinces. And then the four provinces are bookended by huge hydro hydro uh, producers, uh, BC on the west and Manitoba on the east. And then in between are the two prairie provinces, uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan, which have amazing renewables, wind and solar resources. Now, I don't know how many economists and, and experts in this I've interviewed who said we should be trading east-west and Alberta and Saskatchewan wind and solar should be, uh, well, the hydro provinces, uh, the hydro should be used like, like a big battery for the renewables. And and if you had more interties, more transmission between the provinces, if you had markets that they could participate in, you could do that. And all you have to do is look down at the Americans. Look at what California and the Pacific Northwest and the Midwest, you know, MISO and and case case. What are they doing? They're they're fine tuning their markets so that they can they have hour ahead markets, they have fifteen minute ahead markets, they have all of these tools that then allow them to trade electricity so that they can ensure that their grids remain reliable, low cost, all of those things. And our and you're absolutely right, our ability to do that between provinces in, is inhibited by the constitution, by history, by by you know petty politics. Politics gets to play a big, big part of this. Well, Alberta's not going to talk to BC and BC is mad at you know some at those kinds of things. So yes, I don't know how we I don't I, I've almost forgotten what the original question was. <laughs> But oh, but your point about our old models not being adequate to adapt to the realities of the energy tra transition is dead on, in my opinion. Now, does your survey of Canadian CEOs shed any light on that? Interestingly enough, we didn't ask the question that way, unfortunately, because it was a global survey and then we look at what the Canadian CEOs think. But the, the macro observation that did come out is that most of them observed that staying ahead of deep global trends and emerging risks was critical. And, and, and they, they they basketed those into geopolitical conflict, you know, new either trading spheres or allyship, you know, spheres of influence and axes of power, uh, macroeconomic volatility, inflation, cyber, and climate. They, they, they sort of grouped those together and said, anybody that's not watching all of these things and trying to, our words that we put on top of it is, you have to respond to the short-term crisis in the context of the long-term view. And, and I think that challenge, when you have five different short-term crises coming at you, um, when you're a CEO or company is challenging, but our prediction is the companies that are gonna thrive are going to be the ones that deal with that as a package and a scenario of risks and opportunities and trends and take advantage of the short term 
with a total eye on the long term in terms of where they're going. That is much easier said than done, Markham, but I, I think it's valid. One of the reasons why I was so interested in your survey is because I've been arguing for a long time that the first stage of responding to the energy transition, and now it's become acute. I mean, the acceleration since 2020 has been astonishing. And just by the way, uh, and this comes out of my, my previous work, uh, you know, 40 years ago, is there's a there's a period where the key technologies pass their inflection point on the S-curve. Now they become competitive. They're starting to push the old technologies out of, of the market. They're taking market share. And in in the last transition, it was the 1920s. You know, that's when you had the forts and tractor and you had combines and you had all of these things and they just exploded before the, the Great Depression. And you have seen the same thing this now is now it's the 2020s. It almost dates from from 2020 when they that they passed that inflection point on the S curve. And the the problem with that is the, the acceleration this time is so much faster than the, than the last time. Throw on all these poly crises and regulatory issues. And and I, okay, you've convinced me that I should have more sympathy for the CEOs than maybe I did have before. Uh, and that's fair enough. But here's the point I want to make is Canada has been slow to having the conversation. And the I, I pick on the federal government here. I'm not going to let the Alberta government off the hook yet or Saskatchewan. But, but BC and Quebec understand that this is about the economy. This is about the future economy, how you structure it, how you, what kind of uh, energy you use, what, you know, can you get into clean energy, industrial supply chains, all of that kind of, they get it. Some of the other provinces have not gotten it yet. But the federal government, when if you listen to Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo or uh, Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, they talk about climate, 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 climate. And I think that's wrong. I think that's the wrong lens through which to it, it's it's the energy system disruption. That is that's the problem. And I think at that if you if you have that conversation, then the CEOs get plugged into it for starters, in a much more active way, but also ordinary Canadians can identify with, with that because they go, okay, well, hang on a second. I get that. You know, it's, it's about what I'm going to pay for my next car. Or it's how am I, how, what am I, am I, my gas furnace goes out. Am I going to put in a heat pump or not? Or, you know, all of those kinds of calculations and decisions that have to get made get, you have come out of a very different conversation. If you're talking about energy transition versus climate. And I think I that's hundred percent. I'll throw it over to you for some more comment. No, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And interestingly enough, uh, we, we did some work. Uh, we co-chaired the Canadian Chamber of Commerce Net Zero Council for the last two years. And and one of the pieces of work that, that the chamber released as part of that was this concept that you can't uncouple energy transition from the economy, and you shouldn't. And And I think that's a very different conversation than talking about climate as a movement or climate as a policy. And I see this in a lot of the sustainability work that I do with clients generally is it's not a movement. The things we need to do, we need to do because they actually make sense long-term. If they make economic sense or they make business sense. And I think too often the conversation gets parceled off where it's seen as an ideological path versus it's a conversation. And, and and both are required. I'm a big believer that you need strong social fabric and strong economy to be 
a healthy civilization. I, I don't think that's different in, in this scenario. So that's my long-winded way of violently agreeing with you, Marco. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Change Because as long as it's polarizing and ideological, we don't make progress. Let me give you an example, a practical example. And I, I have never met Rich Kruger, and he probably wouldn't know me from, from Adam. But if I had to sit down with Rich Kruger and have this conversation, if I had it through the climate lens and we were talking about emissions reduction because the oil sands is the biggest pollute, you know, emitting sector in all of all of Canada, if we had it through that, I know what he would say. He would say, look, we've been telling you now for a long time, give us an extra decade. Give us an extra decade. We'll put small modular reactors up in, in every one of those 22 oil sands projects. Uh, we'll have both process heat that we can replace uh, our natural gas boilers or our coke boiler, boilers, which produce most of our emissions. We'll get rid of those. We'll use the SMRs and we'll take the electricity that the SMRs produce and we'll electrify our operation. We will be the cleanest oil on the planet if you just give us 10 years and don't squeeze us so hard with this climate policy. That's what he would say. But if we had the different conversation we were talking about the energy transition i would explain to him the role that china is playing in both in in dominating the manufacture of clean energy technologies so when the wind you know wind turbines solar panels electric vehicles batteries battery supply chains they absolutely crush it and they are have driven they've scaled up and driven costs down and they are at the point where they're going to start flooding global markets and they're moving all over the place latin america africa in the asian region uh everywhere the chinese the companies and then the belt and road initiative that's spending 100 billion dollars a year all of that is coming for the oil gas oil the oil sands market this is an existential business issue where you now have a competitor you know your business really well. You do not know your competitor's business very well. And your competitor is about to eat your lunch and you don't even know it. And, and the data supports that. The evidence supports that view. And I, what I would say is, is that this is a no different than any other, uh, in some respects, it's different, no different than any other you know, crisis that the oil sands uh, CEOs would face when they're squeezed on their cost side or their markets are being squeezed. Like for instance, if you've got a leak in a pipeline and now you've got a bunch of oil and you can't sell it, what do you do, right? That's a crisis you've got to respond to. Well, now you're talking about, well, what happens when, uh, you know, if American gasoline demand and diesel demand keeps falling and suddenly your customers, uh, you know, they're not, at, no, we're not going to take that shipment. We're, you know, we don't need have any need for it. And now you have all of this supply capacity that you've paid for and now you don't have a market for your oil. That That's a business crisis. And that's the thing that's staring them in, in the face that they don't want to admit. And that's a, you see the difference between the two conversations. Enormously. And it, you're, you're causing me to think about a few of the findings that we had from the survey. And the Canadian cut of it was sort of 95% Canadian CEOs that we talked to and responded said, They've taken steps in the last few years to change how they create, deliver, and capture value. And my question back to you would be, but is that enough? 61% of them are saying, I am done or I'm in the middle of developing climate-friendly products and services. But my question for you is, are they marking themselves more gently 
on their results than the global scenario might put well it. if I'll, I'll i will respond to that question um there is and and again for regular readers you can go out and maybe go to the bathroom this time i don't know but they've heard me talk about the speeches that secretary u.s secretary of commerce gina raimondo gives and what she says in there, and they're about industrial policy, clean energy, industrial policy, industrial policy in general. She says in 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, the Biden administration, eyes were opened. We did not know how vulnerable we were to China's supply chains. And we found out in a hurry. And it was an eye opener. And she said, and you can trace the... $370 billion U.S. Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIP $280 billion CHIPS Act and the infrastructure, all of goes back to that realization that China had very quietly become the clean energy superpower. And not only was the, were the Americans not number one, they weren't even number two. That's Europe. So in North America, you know, because we kind of take our cue from the Americans, um, we're laggards. Not just not just Canada. The Americans have been laggards too. Now they get it, and they're they're scrambling to catch up. You know, God help them. As I'm often say on this podcast, when the Americans decide to do something, get out of the way, because they'll just run you over. I mean, they're going they're going to give China a good run for its money, and I'm very much interested in the rest of this decade to watch that competition as they scale up their clean energy industry. But we are behind, and we're behind in our thinking. China is so far ahead of us, even the Europeans. So that's the, the, the problem is that, and I don't know this because I don't talk to a lot of CEOs outside of oil and gas, but I'm going to imagine that the, those CEOs outside of oil and gas have a out-of-date view of what's going on globally in the energy transition. And that then leads them to scale back their ambitions to adapt to disruption whatever their you know their services they're offering their products they're offering would that be a fair way to look at this you, you you've got me hearkening back to to your, your your three buckets of how companies respond to disruption that, and that sort of pivot re-engineer status quo and I, I think to bring two thoughts together i think one of the underlying reasons why status quo might seem like it's a viable option if i look at the global data half of the ceos globally are worried they're not going to be viable in 10 years if they do nothing. That number drops to a third in Canada. And, and I don't have a sectoral breakdown of that, Markham, but if you don't think you're that exposed and you don't think there's that big a problem and you don't think that in one of your scenarios you've got an existential crisis, you know, don't fix what isn't broken you know, in their minds, <laughs> I think is a little bit of the challenge that I'm not sure they're taking a really strategic view of the scenarios that may be out there globally and what that means. And as a result, I think you're getting a little bit of inertia or inaction from that. I, I would agree with you completely. This is why I'm writing a column called Vaclav Smeal Sucks. <laughs> because what Smeal has done, like Smeal is, is the preeminent historian of energy transitions. I mean, my God, he's written 50 books. He's Bill Gates' favorite author. I mean, he, the, what he, he's forgotten more about energy, the history of energy, than I will ever know. And I, and I freely admit that. But this energy transition is different. And what he's telling the corporate world, 
across Canada because he's, he's doing this little tour. He was in Vancouver a month ago. Now he's going to be in Calgary later this month. I refuse to go. Uh, and uh, and my corporate uh, friends uh, don't like the fact that I don't like Schmiel. But here's the problem. Schmiel, to go back to the S-curve, we'll use that as a... Schmiel thinks that the techno- the disruptive technologies are still way back on the S-curve. He says, no, 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 we got lots of time. Blah, these 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 changes take decades and he hates you know the extremists as he calls them that want to flick a switch and and do the transition but that's basically it he says um he says that that my take on what he says is that those all that those disruptive technologies are back up and on the tail end of the s curve and we have lots of time to adapt i argue that they're not only past the tail they're up around the curve where the inflection point is, and now they're on hockey stick growth. And the data shows that I'm right. So, Vaklov, if you're listening, smarten up. <laughs> I think we still have some hard-to-abate areas where the technology is not necessarily available at a price point that's economic, um, and in some cases not available at scale. Uh, and I, I love some of the work, I don't know if you're familiar with it, that CPPIB has done uh, through Richard Manley and team on looking at being clear-eyed about abatement capacity. Like what what can you get out through process? How are you actually going to, how economical is that? How probable is that? And then being able to to have a thoughtful perspective versus an aspirational view of where you might get to, whether it's realistic or not. But on the core technologies, I, I would agree with you that we're, we're past that point for some of the primary industries. Right. Uh, sure. And, and there, and there are some like concrete cement, you know, that, that are going to be longer yeah. to abate and, and it's it just because it's tougher. Well, Shelly, I know you have to go and I really appreciate, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your insights. You brought data and not every, not every guest actually brings data, but you brought data and, and some insights into what corporate CEOs think what Canadian CEOs think and the difference between the two that I think was uh, very illuminating. And you've, sh- you've shone a bit of light on a, a very, what I think is a very big problem for Canada. I can't thank you enough for having me, Mark. I've so enjoyed the conversation. I, we could go another hour easily, <laughs> but I appreciate the opportunity to have the discussion with you and, and, and share some of that data. As a Canadian, I worry we need to get this right. I couldn't agree more, and uh, we could go another uh, hour because uh, once you wind me up, I can easily do, you know, a couple (laughs) hours is not a problem. Anyway, thank you very much, and uh, we'll have you on next year when you have the next survey. I look forward to it. Have an excellent day, Mark, and thank you. (laughs) 